Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery, back in Claremont after a thoroughly enjoyable China trip. I planned to get this one uploaded when I was hanging in Beijing, but for many reasons, didn't get done. But I've been back a week, and now, at long last, I bring you another China History Podcast. Our longest episode ever. Special free bonus for making everyone wait so long. In two previous episodes, I introduced a couple of Hong Kong tycoons, Sir Lee Ka Shing, a.k.a. the richest man in Asia, and Sir Run Run Shaw, who will be 106 years old next month, still going strong. Those were CHP episodes 13 and 49. Today, I bring to you my personal favorite, Sir Y.K. Pao, Pao Yugang, who he was, the times he lived in, and what his long list of achievements were is what we'll look at in this podcast. He was known as the Sea Lord, or the Chuanwang. His company, Worldwide Shipping, at its height, owned more than 200 vessels with a deadweight tonnage in excess of 20 million tons. This made it by far the largest merchant fleet in the world. Compared to the size of Sir YK's Worldwide Shipping Fleet... The fleets of more famous Greek tycoons like Onassis, Nyarkos, as well as the reclusive Daniel Ludwig were comparatively much smaller operations. He built up a business empire that not only included worldwide shipping, but the old and venerable firms of Wheelock Marden and Kowloon Wharf and Godown, a.k.a. Wheelock and Wharf. These Large firms, in turn, owned all kinds of property, retail, and other assets. People that do business in Asia have all heard of these companies. He was a giant in business, and we'll look at all that as well today. But besides all that, he was also a role model for service to his birthplace, China. We'll also look at how Sir Y.K. expressed his patriotism and how he did so much for China, not only as a as an early big-time investor and philanthropist, but also as a behind-the-scenes mover and shaker who used his easy access to world political and economic figures to help China get off its knees following the Cultural Revolution and when Gaike Kaifeng began the policy of reform and opening up to the world. Well, that whole policy was easier said than done. China, 1979-1980, was a relative newcomer on the world stage and lacked the sophistication and international contacts of today. What you see today in China, for better or for worse, all had to begin somewhere. And it was the topic of today's episode, Bao Yugang, who rushed in first to help and use his power to give China that initial boost that they needed. He did this for China in general and for his hometown of Ningbo in particular. Today's jaw-dropping economic achievement that you can see today in Ningbo all began with Bao Yugang. Way back when I first began seriously studying Chinese in China, I recalled a CBS TV news magazine, 60 Minutes. They ran a story on Sir Y.K. Bao. It was called, to the best of my recollection, The Billionaire from Hong Kong. This was where I first heard of Y.K. Pao. The piece focused on his great wealth, of course, and the modest circumstances from which he came. 
One thing in particular from that 60 Minutes story that stuck with me all these years concerned a little vignette about you know, how even though he could afford to buy the whole airline or buy a passenger jet, I forgot which, uh, but Mike Wallace, or whoever was interviewing him, said, despite his vast wealth, he always flew economy. And I remember that five or six seconds of video of watching Sir YK set himself down in his coach seat and you know nod politely and give that million-dollar smile to that passenger who was in the next seat. This probably would have been back in the early 80s when this story ran. So the story of YK Pau has stuck with me all these years. Three decades. So today I'd like to pay homage to a man who came from modest circumstances, and not poor though, and through the force of his will and his grit, discipline, determination, and sheer optimism in the face of seeming despair, came to personify everything that's great about Hong Kong and what it means to never forget where you came from. Now, Y.K. Pao never knew this until very late in his life, but he was descended from one of the most revered and beloved of Chinese heroes from the ancient past. About one century into the northern Song dynasty, there reigned the Renzong Emperor, the third of Zhao Kuangyin's progeny to occupy the emperor's throne up in Kaifeng. His regnal period was 1022 to 1063, which at 39 years made him one of the longer reigning emperors. During this time, which would have been just a little before the Battle of Hastings and William the Conqueror, to put a nice time stamp there, there lived the upright and impeccably honest magistrate, Bao Zheng, also known as Bao Gong. He's on my list of podcast topics. Bao Gong had been held up throughout the entirety of Chinese history from the northern Song forward, as an example of what it means to serve the state with complete honesty and to exhibit the utmost in judicial wisdom. Bao Gong is sometimes referred to as China's Solomon. When Chinese, since the Song, wanted to point to an ideal for someone who exhibited the ultimate in judicial rectitude, Justice Bao or Magistrate Bao is often the go-to guy. His famous words, carved on his tomb, I think, were, quote, any of my descendants who commit bribery as an official shall not be allowed back home nor buried in the family burial site. He who shares not my values is not my descendant. The moral to the story is, 29 generations later came Y.K. Pao, descended from this Chinese hero. No one in the Bao family knew about this when Y.K. Pao was born in the Zhenhai district of Ningbo on November 10th, 1918. These were the post-Qing years, as most of you recall. Sun Yat-sen was still alive, but the warlord era was just kicking off, and it was six months before the May 4th movement would happen. He had two brothers and three sisters, and although not the oldest, he became the one in the family who was tasked with supporting the Bao clan in the early days. Although born in Ningbo, the Bao family ancestors came from Lu Prefecture of Hefei in Anhui Province. Hefei, of course, the, the capital of Anhui. The Bao family came to Ningbo sometime during the early part of the Qing dynasty. 
At age thirteen, Y.K. Bao's father, Bao Zhaolong, sent his son to Shanghai to start school. Bao Zhaolong was a businessman in the shoe trade. He lived a nice long life, eighty-seven years, and throughout the entirety of his life, Y.K. Bao consistently and reverently showed the utmost in filial piety to his father and honored his name in all kinds of ways. If y'all recall from many. Past China history podcast episodes. The 1930s weren't the best of times in China. It was a dangerous and chaotic period, and this shaped young Y.K. Bao's life. Events had a way of controlling the direction of one's life. After the Japanese invaded China, the Baos, like so many others, headed west to Chongqing, and this put an end to Y.K. Bao's formal. Schooling, and he ended up working for a bank there. In 1938, he moved back to Japanese-occupied Shanghai to continue his banking career. He rose up the ladder quickly, all through merit and not connections. He established quite a reputation as a reliable and hardworking manager. He was very gifted with numbers and could calculate to three decimal places in his head. In 1942, he had to flee to Chongqing again and served as a manager of the Bank of Industry and Mining. There, he continued to build his reputation and made himself known in banking circles. When the war ended in 1945, he went back to Shanghai after having been selected by the nationalist government to work as a manager at the Bank of Shanghai. He was a 24-year-old Schweiker. Good-looking man with a dashing smile, he had earned the nickname of the Meilan Fang of the banking world. Meilan Fang was a legendary Peking opera singer known for his good looks, among other things, including, of course, his opera performances. We all know from the recent Civil War series that the mid to late 1940s were a terribly chaotic and unstable period in China. Inflation was often Out of control, commodity prices and exchange rates fluctuated wildly on a daily and even an hourly basis, and this caused unbearable hardships on people, rich and poor, and was a massive strain on the banking business. In Shanghai, during these post World War II years, Y.K. Bao continued his banking career, and when the war ended, he was only twenty-seven years old. He had spent his twenties. Learning and excelling in this business, all amidst the Japanese occupation and World War II. Now things were over, and he had firmly established himself in Shanghai circles, due to his quick mind, toughness in the face of adversity, and obvious natural abilities. When he was twenty, through an arranged marriage, of course, what else was there back in those days? Young Y.K. Bao married Huang Xiaoying. This marriage would last all the way till the end. He also got into the paper manufacturing business in Shanghai. In addition to his work in the banking business in Hunan, Chongqing, and Shanghai, he had also worked in his father's shoe store in Wuhan. He had this natural ability in business and finance. This led to a fateful meeting between Y.K. Bao and a man who would have a great impact on his life. This man was his wife's. First cousin, Lu Xuzhang, both Lu and Huang Xiaoying's mothers were sisters. 
He was known in the Bao family as Elder Uncle Lu. He was seven years older than Y.K. Bao, and he came from Yin County in Ningbo, which is today called Yinzhou, and it's in Yinzhou where my company is located and where I always hang when the head office calls. Lu Xuchang was an early convert to communism in 1937 and worked as a senior operative secretly for the cause in Shanghai and other places. It was Elder Uncle Lu who had been the one to tell Y.K. in 1948, as the Civil War was starting to wind down, that he should go to Hong Kong. Lu explained that he was needed there, and he provided the necessary introductions to get 30-year-old Y.K. Bao set up in a company once he got there. This company was called the Guangdahua Hang. It had been set up in Shanghai originally and acted as a front to supply necessary weapons, supplies, and equipment for the Communist 8th Route and New 4th Armies. The whole time Y.K. Bao was working with Lu Xuchang, he never knew this elder uncle was working secretly for the Communists right under the nose of the nationalist government in Shanghai. So, in 1948, just as the revolution in China was entering the final phase and following Lu Xuchang's advice, Y.K. Bao, with 20,000 Hong Kong dollars in savings, headed to Hong Kong to start a life there. Thanks to Elder Uncle Lu's intro, he ended up in the import-export business at Guangdahua Hang and learned the ropes of trading in bulk commodities from all over the world and shipping the cargo to China. There was an embargo going on in China and needed all kinds of supplies to survive. So by doing Elder Uncle Lu's bidding, Y.K. Bao didn't know it, but he was already providing a great necessary service to the motherland. A year later, in 1949, he sent for his family, which included his father, Bao Zhao Long, and his wife, Xiao Ying, and his two young daughters, Anna and Bessie, along with their maid. In all, Y.K. Bao and Xiao Ying would bring four daughters into this world, and to make sure he remembered who they were, he named them alphabetically. Anna, Bessie, Sissy, and Doreen. Sissy and Doreen would be born later in Hong Kong. As the primary source for this podcast episode, I used eldest daughter Anna Solman Bao's recent biography, Y.K. Bao, My Father. No one knew better than Anna Solman about the life of this great man. So with my long interest in the life of Y.K. Bao, and with the Recent release of this book, now was the perfect time to get this one out. You see, marrying such a traditional Chinese woman as Xiao Ying, who wasn't that sophisticated, westernized, or didn't speak English, she couldn't help out her husband with entertaining customers, attending meetings, and wasn't suitable for the operational side of things. Her role was always to manage the household in all the ways expected of someone of her background and stature in the family. So Anna Soman Bao, the eldest daughter and the one whose book I'm drawing heavily from, got to witness a good part of her father's life from the passenger seat, so to speak. The first family residence was a flat on Seymour Road in the mid-levels. At this period of his life, early 1950s, in his early 30s, Y.K. Bao was responsible for putting rice in the bowls of 90 people in his extended family. They all depended on him for either a livelihood, financial support, or both. 
But cutting your teeth like Y.K. Pao had in 1930s and 1940s China, in Hanko, Chongqing, Hengyang, Shanghai, it toughened him, taught him a lot of things. These lessons learned in wartime China, along with his family upbringing, made Y.K. Pao tailor-made for rough-and-tumble 1950s Hong Kong. So Y.K. Pao spent the early 1950s working at this import-export firm, Guangdao Huahang, which later became part of China Resources. He engaged in classic entrepot trading. If you recall from that 10-part history of Hong Kong series, that's what initially made Hong Kong. It was the thousands and thousands of hard-working and resourceful middlemen who facilitated all the trade back and forth between China and the rest of the world. This is a bigger story than you can imagine, with China all shell-shocked from everything that could possibly be thrown at a country. Famine, war, invasion, occupation, economic chaos, bad government, the works. When it was all over in 1949, China depended for its very life on these Hong Kong middlemen who tracked down all the rice, flour, oil, soybeans, cotton, and all the basic necessities needed of a big country and kept the country on its feet during the earliest years after liberation. But Y.K. Bao knew these days would someday be numbered. One day these middlemen would be squeezed out once China reached a certain stage of development. So in 1955, at 37 years old, after considering his options, Y.K. Bao decided to get into the shipping business. The shipping business at that time was dominated by guys like Aristotle Onassis, Stavros Niarchos, C.Y. Tong, or Dong Haoyun, and Daniel Ludwig, who had all started their empires in the 1930s. Y.K. Bao, for reasons of risk, wasn't attracted to the property market. In Chinese, we call real estate chan, property that cannot be moved. He looked at the world economy and where Hong Kong was heading, and he saw ships as property that could be moved. Unlike property, ships were movable assets that could go wherever the action was. The funny thing was that he didn't know anything about the shipping business. He didn't speak much English either. And no one in his family thought it was a good idea. His father didn't support him at all on this venture. But Y.K. Bao knew what he was getting himself into, and he saw the big picture and into the 1960s and the direction Hong Kong and international trade was heading. His first vessel was a 25-year-old British-built 8,201 deadweight ton coal carrier that he paid 160,000 pounds sterling. He was christened the Golden Alpha, the Jin An Hao. And how did he make his money at first? He looked to the northeast, to China's most bitter enemy, the country where wounds in China caused by their brutal occupation had hardly even begun to heal. Y.K. Bao looked to Japan. He knew two things. Their economy was on a roll, and that, with the support of the U.S., Japan was already rising from the ashes and was on the way to making a comeback. He also knew that China and Japan would always need each other, if for nothing else than 
for the commercial benefits that would come from friendly relations. As far as being a Chinese and engaging the Japanese after all they had done to China, especially since 1931, Y.K. Bao believed that the major part of the blame fell more on the Japanese government rather than on the common people of Japan. He believed the Japanese military government had also victimized their own people and had denuded the population of men of fighting age who were sent off to die in these bloody battles. Y.K. Bao believed in business, one shouldn't be small-minded and should have a broader vision, broader than one's own core beliefs or self-interests. And besides, he had a lot of mouths to feed and people who depended on him. Here was an opportunity. He went for it. No sooner than right after he purchased the vessel, he chartered it to the Yamashita Shinihon Company, one of Japan's largest shipping companies. Y.K. Bao's calling card was his strategy of long-term charters, rather than the more established but riskier way to make money in the single-voyage charters. Single-voyage charters could be as much as 25% more profitable, and people sort of laughed at Y.K. Pao and his conservatism and that he was willing to, to leave so much on the table. But when the Suez crisis hit on July 28, 1956, and Nasser nationalized the canal, it sort of turned the shipping world on its head. Vessels were back sailing around the Cape of Good Hope again. With a charter due to expire in nine months, he was able to secure another long-term four- to five-year charter at four times the previous rate. He took his profits and plunged them back into the company, buying a second and a third and then a fourth vessel. This business model brought in a very steady, low-risk income. It was very consistent. After he had purchased his first seven ships, he set up worldwide shipping in Hong Kong and the Marine Navigation Company Limited in London. And Y.K. Ball worked very closely with Japanese companies and had developed very strong and close relations with companies, politicians, and government people. The Japanese banks gave Y.K. Bao all kinds of incentives that were extremely favorable to him. He was allowed to pay his loans and in installments, and this gave him plenty of cash flow to pay for new ships from the revenue generated by these long-term charters. The Japanese loved Y.K. Bao. He was sort of just like them in a way, conservative, reliable, and was consistent on delivering on his promises. By the 1960s, through his constant globe-trotting, he had already established an international business network. Because he was a foreigner, he had access to capital, not only in Japan, but elsewhere, too. And the business he gave to Japan, especially in the, in the 60s with regard to shipbuilding, brought in massive amounts of badly needed foreign exchange for Japan. In the 19. 50s and 60s, Japanese banks weren't sitting on $1.25 trillion in foreign exchange reserves like they are today. It wasn't a one-way street, though. Y.K. Bao got plenty out of the Japanese. Because of the economic policies of the day, companies like Worldwide Shipping received extensive preferential treatment from Japanese banks and from the government. He knew as much as the next guy that the Japanese workers always produced a quality-made product. Their lead times to produce a ship were fast. There were no unions to contend with, so work stoppages were almost non-existent. 
It was a pleasure to do business with them. The two sides, worldwide and the Japanese, enjoyed and prospered from a nice symbiotic relationship. Y.K. Ball had been on the wrong end of the Japanese in 1930s and 40s Shanghai. But whatever enmity he might have felt in his heart, he didn't let it mix with his business affairs. It was in the winter of 1962 that Y.K. Ball built his first ship. Up till now, he had always sailed second-hand cargo ships, 50 in all, with a tonnage in excess of 3 million tons. Now, one of his dreams had come true. His first ship built for worldwide shipping at his specifications. He christened the ship the Eastern Sakura. It had been built up in Hokkaido. The christening and watching it slide into the water brought tears to Y. Cape Ball's eyes. He had gone to Hong Kong Bank to obtain help with the financing of this vessel. They, of course, turned him down. There were a number of reasons for this. First, there was the bank's, at that time, unfamiliarity and reluctance to get into the shipping business. But also, Y.K. Ball, who back in 1962 was not a big tycoon yet. He was a relative nobody and not the kind of customer that was sought after by the bank. Like that scene in Wall Street when Bud Fox tries to get in the door of Gordon Gecko, the persistent and determined Y.K. Ball repeatedly kept coming back to Hong Kong Bank and knocked on the door of the bank chief accountant, John Saunders, until the future chairman of Hong Kong Bank would see him. Yeah, it turned out to be a fateful meeting. He was asking for a $750,000 loan to purchase a two and a half million dollar ship. He explained that he could easily pay back the loan, earning as he was about $750,000 per annum chartering this ship on a long-term basis to Japanese haulers of raw materials. Despite the apparent attractiveness, Saunders said no to the deal. Not the biz that HSBC wanted to get into. When Y.K. Ball went one further and said, he could deliver a letter of credit from the Japanese bank of the customer. Well, that sweetened it up a good deal. By offering an LC as collateral against the loan, it sort of dropped HSBC's risk down several notches. So, Y.K. Ball got his loan, and Saunders later went on to serve as bank chairman from 1977 to 1986. This marked the beginning of the worldwide shipping HSBC relationship that would be crucial to Y.K. Bao in the years to come. It would be one of the keys of his success. And Hong Kong Bank would profit handsomely in their investment in worldwide shipping. In the 1960s, Y.K. Bao bought his residence up on Deepwater Bay Road. My friend pointed it out to me once when we were driving up there. He lived next door to Li Ka-shing. His next order would be for three new ships. In the shipbuilding industry, three is considered buying in bulk. This allowed for a discount and a lower cost per vessel. In 1967, Anna Bao, his oldest daughter, married Helmut Soman. Although Y.K. Bao didn't have any sons of his own, Helmut became the first of four sons-in-law who became more than just part of the family. A few years later, Dr. Helmut Soman joined his father-in-law in worldwide shipping and played an integral part in bringing the company to the next level in the 1970s and 80s. 
When the Suez Canal reopened in 1975, it caused a real crisis in the shipping industry. The dynamic created a rather massive oversupply of ships and not enough business to keep them sailing on the high seas. The energy business was also on the decline at that time, and all these bulk carriers were sitting around idle and sucking up capital to keep them maintained. And ship owners in the mid to late 70s and into the early 80s were burdened with debt, and many of the weaker firms began to either go under or look for bigger fish to buy them. But not worldwide shipping. Y.K. Bao was living large on his long-term charters, and while everyone else was starving, his company was doing fine. His long-term conservative approach to how he ran his company ended up allowing him to prosper in rough times when so many others had failed. By the mid-1970s, Y.K. Bao was the top-ranked ship owner in the world. On the cover of Newsweek's March 18, 1976 issue, Y.K. Bao was proclaimed the Lord of the Sea, and they described him as a modest, frugal, anti-playboy. Today in our world of globalization, it's so normal for companies to have offices around the world doing business in a hundred countries or more. Y.K. Bao's worldwide shipping was such a company, and its tireless chairman flew all over the world, all the time in the 60s and 70s, flying around the world like he did, and Y.K. Bao being who he was and all, always meeting people, acquired an amazing Rolodex of friends. Some were acquaintances, but many became very close. Among those who became close friends were former British PMs Edward Heath and, of course, Margaret Thatcher. Dennis Thatcher, in fact, was a regular golfing partner of Y.K. Ball. This sport really became his passion in the 1970s. He saw what a great forum it was to build friendships and do business. In 1976, Y.K. Bao acquired another brilliant son-in-law, Peter Wu, who married second daughter Bessie. Peter Wu was Shanghainese and came with a very strong background in banking and finance. In 1978, in recognition for all that he had done for the British and Hong Kong economies, he was knighted by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And at his investiture at Buckingham Palace, he chatted with the Queen briefly and sent his regards to Prince Philip, who he had met on a few occasions. And Huang Xiaoying, the modest, unassuming wife and traditional Chinese woman from Ningbo, she became Lady Paul. From that point forward, it was Sir Y.K. and Lady Ball. Sir Y.K. hobnobbed with the rich, famous, and well-connected, and moved easily within these circles. And the funny thing was, although a lifelong learner of English, he carried a cassette recorder and, you know, always used to listen to these English tapes. But he never really learned to speak the language fluently and effortlessly. Yet English was the language of his company, and whenever he called all of his department heads together, no matter in Hong Kong or in any of his offices around the world, only English was used. But in human relations, it's, it's more than just the spoken language that ties people and builds bonds. Sir Y.K. exuded charisma, charm, and had great people skills that really allowed him to make a connection with so many people great leaders and regular businessmen alike. 
So up to now, I have given you a rough overview about where Sir YK came from and how he established himself in the world of shipping and as a heavy-duty man of influence. He was by now already a billionaire or close to becoming one. Back in the 70s, billionaires weren't a dime a dozen like they are now. He was known in the Chinese-speaking world as the Chuanwang, or Shipping King. He lived a very strict regimen and exercised vigorously every day, jumping rope, swimming, and never slowing down. His business model, first derided as overly conservative, turned out to be the right one when it came to long-term survival and prosperity. Remember, from 1966 to 1976, there was the Cultural Revolution going on. And you recall from that History of Hong Kong series, things got real dicey in the colony, especially in 1967. Sir YK wrote that storm out okay and didn't panic like so many others. By late 1977, he began to see that the worst was over for China, that a whole new dawn was breaking. He was a very well-connected guy and had very informed sources everywhere, including China. And everything he was hearing in 1977-78, with Mao Zedong now gone, was leading him to believe that China was going to open up and welcome foreign investment. He had first come to know about Deng Xiaoping when he watched Deng deliver his eulogy at Zhou Enlai's funeral in 1976. That's where he first became aware of his comeback. And the more he heard about Deng and what this leader had on his mind, had a major impact on the direction he would take in life as the 1980s approached. In his first China visit in 1980, Sir YK and Lady Bao first flew to Beijing, where they were reunited with elder uncle Lu, Lu Xuzhang, Lady Bao's first cousin. Lu Xuzhang, you recall, worked secretly in the communist underground during the war years in Shanghai and elsewhere. He had set up the Guangdahua Hang as a conduit to supply the PLA and later all of China, and had been instrumental in sending YK Bao to Hong Kong in 1948. Now, after a 30-year silence, Lu Xuzhang would continue to play a large role in YK Bao's next act in life, naturally, you know. Lu Xuzhang had suffered during the Cultural Revolution, but had survived, and now he was back. Lu Xuzhang had, by this time, been appointed China's Minister of Trade. He was instrumental in opening many doors in China for Sir YK and for arranging his first visit to China. In 1979, when Hua Guofeng was still the top guy in the party, Sir YK had met him in London at a state dinner that Queen Elizabeth threw for him. She had also invited Y.K. to the affair, and it was at this event that he pledged to Premier Hua his full support for China's policies and committed himself to do all he could to help China launch their shipbuilding industry and, in fact, their whole international shipping industry. Y.K. Bao was one of the first of the high-profile Hong Kong Chinese tycoons to sign on early to the program of investing in and helping to rebuild China after the devastation wrought by the Cultural Revolution. If you recall from past CHP episodes, China, since liberation, went through quite a few upheavals. Mao's political campaigns in the 1950s, as well as the Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution, did a lot to 
alienate all these overseas Chinese and made China look like a risky and unreliable place to do business. But Y.K. Ba was one of the early ones to see that the times they were a change in, and he was committed to help. And later, after Y.K. Ball started pouring millions into China, other tycoons and overseas Chinese saw what he was doing and hopped on the bandwagon and did the same thing. In his March 1980 visit to China, Y.K. Ball was hooked up with Chai Shu Fan, a minister involved in heavy industry and shipbuilding, and they hit it off well. And at once, Y.K. Ball committed himself to offering his full support to China's shipbuilding industry. He set up a joint venture company and placed orders for a first and then many other vessels that would be built in China. He donated two of his own ships to get the JV going. And besides all this, he provided a lot of knowledge and trained China's next generation of management and how the whole shipping industry worked. By May 1981, this was all in place and China was on its way. It was a huge leap of faith, although some people had an idea where China was heading. Very few back in 1980 knew what was going to happen. It was on this March 1980 Beijing trip that YK donated $10 million to help launch China's tourism industry. From his discussions with Lu Xuzhang, he saw that China's tourism trade was a total wreck with almost no infrastructure. And let me just add that as someone who actually visited China in 1980, I can attest to that. With China opening up like it was, masses of people were going to start arriving soon for tourism and business. There were hardly any decent hotels and nothing was set up yet to international standards. So he donated $10 million with no strings attached, just gave the money and then all the profits from this hotel that would be built were to go to the Ministry of Tourism. In 1978, China had projected only about 100,000 tourists who would bother trying to come to China. But by the end of the year, over one and a half million had already come and gone. So there was some urgency to do something about the tourist industry. And any frequent traveler to China in the 70s and 80s has plenty of war stories to tell about some of the places they stayed in. On March 19, 1980, Y.K. Bao met Deng Xiaoping for the first time. These two got on great from the start. Y.K. Bao reported to the great man about the, you know, the JV company he had set up with Chai Shufan's help. He also mentioned about the orders he had placed for new China-made ships, and he also let Deng know orders were in the pipeline for four more vessels that would bring in an additional $440 million U.S., and that this would bring in a torrent of foreign exchange for China. Deng Xiaoping, being someone who preferred to take action rather than sit around and talk about doing things, complimented Sir Y.K. on the way he exhibited his patriotism and that he was single-handedly providing the much-needed boost that China needed to launch their shipping industry, and furthermore, that worldwide was supplying all the training and knowledge needed by China's shippers to grow in the international market. This meeting with Deng would be the first of several. As I said, they hit it off immediately. They had joked about their similar circumstances outside of the office. Deng Xiaoping had said to Y.K. Paul, My children all live with me. So do my grandchildren. 
I like them around me all the time. You and I are very alike. We are very democratic at home. We are both controlled by our daughters. We have to follow what our daughters tell us to do. Furthermore, our grandchildren have even a greater say on what we do and what we are not to do. YK retorted to China's paramount leader, quote, Yeah, at work, my words count, but when I get home, I'm, I'm controlled by five women. You know, meaning, of course, his wife and his four daughters. Immediately after he met the great man, YK wrote the following letter to Premier Hua Guofeng. It said, My respected Premier Hua, I have had the opportunity to talk about exporting ships in China with Minister Chai. With the support and cooperation of relative government department heads, their initial reaction has been a warm welcome, of which I am grateful. During my recent trip to Beijing, I witnessed a strong wind of change. Under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, with his vision and mission, I am confident that the policy of the four modernizations will take off with flying colors. The development of tourism is paramount to the modernization process. Not only is the foreign currency important, the free flow of people, ideas, and knowledge will also stimulate trade. Towards this end, there is a great need for the development of hardware. Together with my 85-year-old father, Xu Long, I wish to contribute a small share towards the foreign modernizations program. We would like to donate $10 million to build a modern international hotel in Beijing and a new office for the Tourism Bureau. We hope the government can designate a plot of land in the center of Beijing where we can build this hotel. If this plan meets with your approval, my father and I will be happy to come to Beijing to hand over the check of $10 million. Respectfully yours, Bao Yu Gong, March 21st, 1980. This was how he did it. He had access to China's highest leaders. He was a billionaire who had international contacts, many of them movers and shakers on the world stage. And now he was bringing the entirety of his abilities to help China get up off its knees. Well, things didn't move forward as quickly as he expected, and things with regard to this hotel languished for a while. Despite the selfless generosity, you know, back in 1980, this was still considered quite a politically sensitive matter, taking all this money from a capitalist as Y.K. Bao. But the great man intervened finally, and once Deng Xiaoping put his weight behind this project and told everyone to step on it, things began to move faster. And Deng even promised to come to the opening and offer up his calligraphy for the sign of the hotel. And then work began on the Long Hotel on 10 acres of land near the Third Ring Road on Worker Sports Stadium Road. Then, on July 4th, 1981, they had the foundation-laying ceremony. Y.K. was there with his 86-year-old father. God only knows what ran through the head of Bao Chao Long watching this all unfold before his eyes. His son had done well and had brought honor to the Bao family name. And Bao Chao Long, present that day to witness his son name this new hotel after him, was indeed a, a great show of filial piety and respect. Y.K. Pao had handed over two checks to Deng Xiaoping personally, one for the hotel and another for a library that was to be built at Jiao Tong University in Shanghai, and both would be named after his father, Bao Chaolong. 
The hotel opened in October 1985, but Bao Chaolong didn't live to see it completed. Deng and six ministers attended the opening ceremony, and true to his name, he provided the calligraphy for the hotel's sign at the main entrance. And if you go to the hotel today, you'll see it, the Chaolong Fan Dian. I don't know of anyone today, billionaire, leader, or otherwise, who could bring out the highest leader in China, along with six bujang, or, or ministers, to attend functions like this one for the Chaolong Hotel. Prior to that, in March of 1981, on another trip that Y.K. Bao made to Beijing, uh, after he met with Deng Xiaoping, Deng had asked him to become sort of like a special unofficial advisor. Meanwhile, back in the world of commerce, the shipping business in the early 1980s was on a steep decline. But Y.K. Pao had seen it coming and had massively downscaled his operation, selling off about two-thirds of his fleet, going from 220 to only 70 vessels. This loaded him up with cash, and his competitors, who didn't see the slump coming, either went under or had to be bought out by others. At its peak, the worldwide fleet was only slightly smaller than the entire Russian Navy. The first half of the 1980s was a busy time for Y.K. Bao. Before we get into his involvement in the Sino-British talks regarding the future of Hong Kong after 1997, let's look at two events that, in their day, were quite a sensation. If you remember from that Lee Ka-shing episode, CHP 13, back in September 1979, he had sent a jolt to the world of international business by taking over HSBC's stake in the venerable British firm, Hutchison Wampoa. That signaled that the age where the British dominated every aspect of big business was coming to an end. Lee also owned 11% of another old British firm called Kowloon Wharf and Godown. Like the name suggests, they owned a lot of waterfront property in Kowloon. Lee had sold this 11% stake to Y.K. Bao who quietly began to buy up as many shares as he could in the open market. When he got to 20% of Kowloon Wharf, he was entitled to a couple seats on the board. And this is where his second son-in-law, Peter Wu, comes to the fore. But there was a competing interest that did not want Y.K. Bao moving in on their turf. This was good old Hong Kong land, controlled by the Keswick family, who controlled Jardines. Despite their behind-the-scenes maneuverings, Y.K. Bao was able to up his stake to 25% of Kowloon Wharf, and then he asked for two more of the 12 seats on the board. And with Y.K. Bao seemingly muscling in on them like he was, the corporate battle for control began. The Kessicks were determined to stop Y.K. in his tracks, and they initiated some hostile actions to buy him out and keep the firm under their control. The attack by the Jardines-controlled Hong Kong land was planned to coincide with an overseas trip Y.K. Ball took to visit with his offices and attend some business and industry-related functions. They figured with the big boss out of town and no internet invented yet, they could do this swiftly and decisively. So, on June 13, 1980, Y.K. Ball headed out of Hong Kong. As soon as he was out of the picture... Hong Kong land launched their attack. 
They made an offer of 3.3 billion Hong Kong dollars in new shares and debt for all of Kowloon Wharf's available shares. This came to $90 Hong Kong per share. All the Jardines backed Hong Kong land needed was 49%. Peter Wu got wind of this as soon as it happened and was able to track down YK in Paris and let him know they were under attack. Helmut Soman was in London at the time and YK tried to track him down. He called him one night but only got through to Anna and Helmut's son, YK's grandson. And he got the young boy to go through his parents' address book and find him the telephone number of the chairman of Hong Kong Bank, Michael Sandberg. YK called the future Baron Sandberg and asked for the bank's support for a $150 million Hong Kong dollar uh, loan to help him fight off this hostile takeover of Kowloon Wharf. And he got it. It's funny to read about how all these big deals went down back in the pre-mobile phone, pre-internet age. Anyway, the next day, Y.K. Bao made an offer and had it published in all the papers. He sweetened Hong Kong Land's offer by $10 more per share. That brought it up to 100 Hong Kong dollars per share for all available shares. The Jardines folks thought with Y.K. out of town, they could strike fast and furiously and finish this off before Y.K. could react. But Y.K. and Helmut Soman quietly snuck back into town, on different flights, of course, and Y.K. checked himself into the Hong Kong Hilton and set up his base there. All his closest advisors, Helmut Soman, Peter Wu, their bankers and management, worked on the deal. The Jardines never saw it coming. Their problems were twofold. First, they weren't putting up much cash. They were financing this takeover with new shares and debt. Y.K. Bao, thanks to unloading so much of his fleet, was sitting on a ton of cash and had the massive power and influence of Hong Kong Bank standing behind him. Hong Kong land matched Y.K. Bao's offer of 100 Hong Kong per share. Although the Jardines group ran things at the top, the shareholder base of Kowloon Wharf was overwhelmingly ethnic Chinese, and for obvious reasons, their hopes were pinned on their guy, Y.K. Paul. These shareholders, rather than take the very generous offer from Jardines, waited to see what would happen next. The Hutchison takeover by Li Ka-shing had whetted the appetite of the investing public of Hong Kong. Now they saw they had another one in play. It meant something to a lot of Hong Kong people. To see one of their own muscle in on these established British Hongs who had their roots in the battled 19th century imperialist colonial days. So YK upped his offer to $105 Hong Kong a share, a number that his advisors told him was pricey, but for sure Hong Kong land could not match, and that the Kowloon Wharf shareholders would totally embrace. And so on that triumphant evening, YK Ball called a press conference and announced that he was offering to buy, in his and his family's name, the shares of Kowloon Wharf and Godown for 2.1 billion Hong Kong dollars in cash for 20 million shares at $105 per share, which gave him 49% of the company. And he said this offer was good for two days. Ads were placed in all the major papers that said anyone other than Hong Kong land who had shares to sell He'd take them at $105 Hong Kong. And the response was overwhelming. 
Five years later, in 1985, Sir Y.K. did it again with the purchase of the old British firm Wheelock & Company for $2.6 billion Hong Kong. This takeover was much less acrimonious than the Wharf transaction. And these two companies, Wheelock & Wharf, gave Y.K. Ball, in addition to his worldwide shipping empire, large tracts of primo waterfront real estate in Central and throughout Kowloon. He also picked up through these acquisitions, control of the Hong Kong tramways, the Star Ferry, Ocean Terminal, Modern Terminals, Lane Crawford, and a number of hotels in Jim Sa Joy. With such brilliant and capable sons-in-laws working for him, Y.K. Bao decided to step back a little from his day-to-day -day running of his business empire and focus more on world politics. There was something big going on behind the scenes during everything that happened in between the Wharf and Wheelock takeovers. If you recall from the History of Hong Kong series back in 1979, then-Governor Murray McElhose had gone to Beijing, and after years of tiptoeing around the issue, the matter of Hong Kong's sovereignty after 1997 was finally raised for the first time. In this fateful meeting, Deng Xiaoping told Governor McElhose that they weren't going to extend the lease. And this began the long, winding, and tortuous road that led to the joint declaration signed in December 1984. Five rough years lie ahead. From 1979 to 1984, there was plenty of posturing and acrimony between Britain and China for the future of Hong Kong. Margaret Thatcher was determined to hold on to Hong Kong. And if she couldn't hold on to sovereignty, at least she wanted to have Britain project some degree of power and continue to administer the territory. Deng Xiaoping had other plans, though. And that was the core of the problem for the early going. And in June 1982, fresh from her victories in the Falklands War, when she believed Britain was invincible... The British Prime Minister really pushed her case. This is just rehash from the past history of Hong Kong series. Things really started to look bad. Morale was at an all-time low in Hong Kong, and the people, with no voice in the matter, were all wondering where this was all leading. The British and China sides were nowhere near in agreement, even in principle. When all the uncertainty began to affect business, and the financial system that was unwilling to take any risk that straddled 1997, it became more critical than ever to break this impasse. In February 1982, on a visit to China, Y.K. Pao had visited Deng Xiaoping at his residence, and the subject of Hong Kong came up. Deng let him know there would be no ifs, ands, or buts. Hong Kong had to be returned to China. There would be no negotiation on this one point. However, Deng mentioned to Sir Y.K. that Hong Kong's capitalist system would be allowed to remain, and that even though the territory had to be given back to China, nothing would change. He needed Y.K. Bao to get this message out and to test the waters to see what the response would be. And so Sir Y.K. Bao, now in his mid-60s and at the height of his power and worldwide prestige, set out to use the entirety of his dignitas and salesmanship skills and his 
broken English with no diplomatic training or staff to go sell all parties on this idea and to get everyone to see the big picture of what one country, two systems meant. This mostly self-taught man who Chinese history had shortchanged early in his life and didn't allow him the formal education he sought, who fled to Hong Kong and built this fortune by the seat of his pants, he turned out to be the ultimate middleman for a problem like this. First of all, he had very strong personal relationships with all the main actors in this drama. Deng Xiaoping, Margaret Thatcher, Jeffrey Howe, Percy Craddock, Ronald Reagan, and Governors Murray McElhose and Edward Yode. He knew them all and had easy access to and very friendly relationships with all of them. Both sides, China and Britain, were dug in hard. By October 1983, Margaret Thatcher started to come around on the sovereignty issue, but she was still insisting on British administration of Hong Kong. Then came all this talk of granting as many British passports as possible to Hong Kong people. It was, it really was getting messy, and Mrs. Thatcher was determined to get her way on this. Through his personal talks with the Prime Minister and using his access to Ronald Reagan, who he knew was close to Mrs. Thatcher, Y.K. Bao slowly, slowly began to change her mind. The main points he tried to explain to Mrs. Thatcher were that this standoff wasn't good for anyone. Not good for Britain, China, or the people of Hong Kong. Y.K. Bao used his ways to explain to the British Prime Minister that there was no way to win. China was not going to budge on this issue of Hong Kong, and he heard it straight from Deng Xiaoping himself. He was able to get her to understand the Taiwan angle and all this. He explained that the bigger picture was reunification with Taiwan and that this Hong Kong case was merely a dry run. If this could be done well and turn out to be a win-win, then that would make the future chances of Taiwan reunification that much better. He told her, no way, no matter what. The Chinese were not going to back down on this matter of Hong Kong. Treaty of Nanjing or no Treaty of Nanjing? He also explained to Mrs. Thatcher that there was much for the UK to gain from reaching an amicable agreement with China. And he explained how they, the British, handled the matter of 1997 would go a long way in how China and Britain would get along in the 80s, 90s, and into the 21st century. There was everything to gain for Britain as far as trade relations and future investment by China in Britain. And he let her know China was coming back and would be a huge and mighty economic and political power in the world. And it was better for Britain to get on the tram rather than get run over by it. Jeffrey Howe, now the Lord Howe, would later call Y.K. Bao the lubricant of the Sino-British negotiations. His behind-the-scenes entirely subtle role helped push the two sides together And on December 19, 1984, the document known as the Sino-British Joint Declaration was signed in the Great Hall of the People. And, of course, Sir Y.K. Bao was there to witness the event. In 1983, Y.K. Bao was diagnosed with lung cancer, but it was caught in its early stages, and he survived. And that's terribly ironic, because Sir Y.K., for his entire life, was a stickler for clean living, 
daily exercise, and of course, no smoking. In fact, Anna Soman had mentioned in her book, only two people in the world were allowed to light up in front of Y.K. Bao. One was his father, Bao Chao Long, and the other was Deng Xiaoping. In October 1984, Sir Y.K. and Lady Bao made a trip to Ningbo, their first time back in 40 years. He took one look at the poverty and the backwardness of Ningbo and measured that against the attitude and the industriousness of the Ningbo people, and he felt determined for the rest of his remaining years to help bring continuous economic development to his hometown. He went back a year later in 1985, this time with his whole immediate Bao family. There he got to visit the Bao ancestral village and got to lay eyes on the wedding bed from when they got married all those years ago. There's a funny story Anna Soman tells about how the Ningbo authorities, prior to the visit, had to track down where this bed was. It had been sold several times over the decades, but they were still able to track it down to some fisherman in Shan. Because he had expressed reluctance to let it go, they sweetened the deal by offering to pay him 1,200 RMB for the bed, plus they made him an exact replica of it and had some local Buddhist monks bless it. So this this Yumin, this fisherman, had only spent 150 RMB to unknowingly purchased the wedding bed of Sir Y.K. Bao and Lady Bao, and he accepted the deal. So they got the bed back. In Anna Soman's book, she also mentions how, during this 1985 tour of Ningbo, the officials took her father to the hotel swimming pool that they had prepared special for his visit, knowing what an avid swimmer he was. You know, China in the mid-'80s, I don't know, they weren't, they weren't as savvy as they are now. They pulled out all the stops to get the swimming pool ready for the return of the hometown hero. But no one knew what they were doing and obviously didn't know the benefits of adding chlorine to the water. So when they proudly showed the swimming pool to Sir YK, it was already turning green with algae. Didn't matter. He went in, did a few laps, kept his head out of the water. He wasn't going to make them lose face or you know, do anything that might even presume for an instant that he was too good to take a dip. That was what kind of a guy he was. They loved him in Ningbo. And there was a great civic pride in his achievements. On this trip, he also pledged to donate $20 million U.S. to build a university in Ningbo. And this became Ningbo Dashe. And just as Deng Xiaoping had done for the Zhaolong Hotel, the calligraphy that hangs over the front gate at Ningbo University is that of its benefactor, Y.K. Bao. Ningbo University, which opened in 1986, is now a highly ranked institution in China, and the Bao Family Foundation is still involved. Sir Y.K., on top of this, had been giving money to fund college scholarships, not only in Beijing, but with Zhejiang University as well. A lot of university grads got the chance to study in Britain and elsewhere, thanks to scholarships funded by the Y.K. Bao Foundation. It was also on this 1985 Ningbo trip that Y.K. Bao learned, after visiting Tianyige, the oldest library in China still in existence, after seeing his inclusion in the Bao Shizhongpu, that listed the entire Bao family lineage, that he was the 29th descendant from Magistrate Bao of the Northern Song. Those who are 
Regular visitors to China will know of the airline called Dragon Air. It was founded by K.P. Chao, Cao Guangbiao, in 1985. It was a little upstart that, as soon as it was registered, was schooled and kicked around by the two players who owned all the routes in and out of Hong Kong and China. Those were Cathay Pacific and Air China. Eh, it's a long story, but Y.K. Bao was called in and was sort of tricked into investing in this airline. He ended up buying 39% of Dragon Air, and probably much to his chagrin, Dr. Helmut Solman found himself in charge of the fledgling operation. Nonetheless, many years later, by the time they were able to unload their ownership in Dragon Air to Citic, Swire, and Air China, Sir YK was able to extricate himself from the airline business without incurring a loss. Dragon Air is now part of Cathay Pacific and the One World Alliance, and may I say it's the preferred airline for domestic travel in China for your humble narrator. By 1986, Sir Y.K. Bao had turned the day-to-day control of worldwide shipping to his capable son-in-law and longtime aide-de-camp, Dr. Helmut Soman. The BW Group today, of which worldwide is a part, is a major player in the shipping business today, carrying oil, LPG, LNG, and other energy products. Y.K. Bao's grandson is the chairman. For the remainder of his years, Y.K. Bao worked tirelessly to assist Ningbo in its economic development. He would also get together with all his friends and associates who had come from Ningbo, and he got them to also go back to their ancestral home and help lift the city up. He became a, a role model to all of these guys and to many other overseas Chinese who wanted to make some kind of a contribution to China, the land where they had come from. In 1984, Ningbo received a nice boost when Deng Xiaoping allowed many of the freedoms and regulations from the special economic zones to be applied to 14 other up-and-coming cities in China. Three years later, in February of 1987, Y.K. Bao took it one step further when he was able to do the ultimate favor for Ningbo. Using his personal relationship with Deng Xiaoping and China's highest layer of leadership, he was able to get Ningbo the status of a Jihua Dan Lie Shi. What this was, was a status only a coveted few got. This special economic status allowed your city to bypass the local provincial government and be controlled by Beijing directly. And not only did you get preferential treatment, you got to keep more money that normally would have been sucked up by the provincial tax authorities. The Ningbo Economic Development Council was created, and with the establishment of that august body, a lot of what you might see driving around Ningbo and Yinzhou today has come about as a direct result of that policy. There were plenty of cities in China standing in line for their chance to get that special status, but as payback for all that Y.K. Bao had done for Deng Xiaoping's efforts to make China a better place, economically and geopolitically, Deng granted this one request. I've been closely associated with the city of Ningbo since 2001, and that place has come a very long way since the early 1990s. So why Cape Bao didn't just build a university and give a ton of money away to fund a lot of scholarships? 
He used his influence to get his hometown of Ningbo the kind of special economic status that fast-tracked all their big ideas like Lisha Airport, Beilun Harbor, and dozens of other projects that later came about. You know, nowadays it's so common to see overseas Chinese from all over the world making all kinds of contributions, big and small, that aid China in all kinds of ways. For some big things that require some particularly heavy lifting, nowadays it's common for many tycoons both inside and outside China come to the fore with some big donation or sponsorship. But back in 1979-1980, you didn't know about this kind of thing. Y.K. Bao was, I guess you could compare him to George Harrison when George did the concert for Bangladesh in 1971. Benefit concerts from big names were sort of unknown before that. Well, Y.K. Bao stepped forward first and became the role model for other patriotic tycoons to follow. And his role behind the scenes, bringing Britain and China together, five angstroms at a time, very few witnessed how he did this. And what he did for Ningbo, well, you know, that's pretty well known. And he remains a famous son who all Ningbonese are proud of. It's hard to put an accurate measure on how much value Deng Xiaoping was able to obtain from his relationship with Bao Yugang. Deng, being a busy guy and all, didn't have all the time or energy to go gallivanting around the world. To have had a friend and confidant, as well as an economic and diplomatic resource as Y.K. Bao, allowed Deng to get messages out and to gather information told to him in confidence by a friend who should know. China didn't have the kind of financial power back then that they have now. If Deng was going to make this whole thing work, he was going to need a lot of help at the outset, building the foundations of everything that was going to come once the 21st century hit. So Y.K. Bao brought something to Deng Xiaoping that allowed China's most powerful leader and the architect of the new and improved China, an insight that just couldn't be had using internal resources. Y.K. Bao enjoyed a nice retirement in his late 60s, spent a lot of time in Hawaii with Lady Bao, and was surely contented that everything he had created from nothing was now in extremely capable hands. He had trained four sons-in-laws to take over all his business interests. The greatest irony, I guess, of Bao Yugang's life was that, despite his fitness regimen and clean living, Sir Y.K. Bao only lived for 73 years, passing away on September 23rd, 1991. Tragically, he never lived to see the turnover of Hong Kong's sovereignty to China on July 1st, 1997. As I mentioned, his next-door neighbor was Li Ka-shing, richest man in Asia, and a true blue international mover and shaker of the highest order. Anyways, they were personal friends and often played golf together. He saw Sir Y.K. weeks before he passed, and he later told Anna Soman Bao many years later, quote, It was not the time to talk business or politics. I praised him for his achievements, his being the first Chinese sea lord, and how we Chinese were so proud of him. I said, Y.K., you have done so much in life. You did not just enjoy your earnings. You shared money with many people by giving them education and medicine. 
You were the first Chinese to be a director and later vice chairman of a British bank. You were the first Chinese to sit on an American bank's advisory board. You were the first Chinese to buy into a British Hong. What a meaningful life you have. You should be so happy. To quote the Los Angeles Times from uh, the obituary uh, that ran on YK Bao, the headline ran, quote, YK Bao, 73, Clerk Rose to Shipping Billionaire. I'll quote a few excerpts. Y.K. Bao, the Shanghai clerk who became one of the world's richest men, died Monday. He was 73 and had been suffering from asthma and other respiratory problems for two years, a family spokesman said. Bao died in his modest house in the Deepwater Bay residential area on Hong Kong Island. Born Yuekong Bao, but known throughout his life by his initials, Bao built up one of the world's biggest merchant shipping fleets, but was modest about his fortune. He rarely carried cash, preferring to borrow from his driver. After starting as a bank clerk in Shanghai, he rose to the second highest position in the bank. He fled to Hong Kong before the communist takeover of China in 1949 and set up an import-export business before turning to shipping in 1955 with the purchase of a second-hand coal-burning freighter. At its height, his shipping company boasted 200 vessels, totaling more than 20 million deadweight tons. Bao, who had only a high school education, once was asked why he chose to go into shipping. He replied that, at the time, it was difficult to break into other well-established businesses in Hong Kong. He was a popular figure in both Hong Kong and China, making huge donations to public works in his hometown where he was regarded as a hero. Hong Kong's second-to-last governor, uh, Sir David Wilson, he had said uh, that, quote, Sir Y.K. Bao was one of Hong Kong's leading businessmen and perhaps the first to achieve a truly international stature. And to echo that, uh, Forbes had written about Y.K. Bao, Bao was known as a devoted family man. His marriage to Wang Su Ling was arranged in the traditional fashion. The couple met on their wedding day in 1937. But by all accounts, it was happy and certainly enduring. Though he had no sons to take over his businesses, his four daughters, Anna, Bessie, Sissy, and Doreen, named in alphabetical order the, quote, better to remember them by, he said, all married well. The sons-in-law have become important figures in Hong Kong business and politics in their own right. Austrian lawyer Helmut Soman took charge of the shipping side of the business, while Peter Wu ran wharf until leaving to devote his time to public service. The morning after celebrating the mid-autumn festival on his boat with his family, Bao died peacefully, the first Hong Kong businessman to achieve truly global stature. Anyways, I am sure the history books will remember Bao Yugang. If you'd like to be a fly on the wall and read the details of how Sir YK operated, go get Anna Selman Bao's 2013 book entitled YK Bao, My Father. As I mentioned, she got to sit next to her father a lot of the times when he was doing his thing, building worldwide shipping, engaging China, meeting with Deng and other China leaders, meeting with other world leaders. I left most of the family stuff and anecdotes out, so if I have piqued your interest at all, go pick up that book. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from yeah, 
I know this sounds like a broken record, but from sunny Claremont Cali on the very edge of L.A. County. Hey, baby, you cross Monte Vista Avenue and you're in San Bernardino County. It's going up to 86 degrees today. Thanks for listening, and I welcome you to join us next time, if you dare, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.